Welcome to Vilnius talk on the strategy of denial. The topic of uh, our discussion today is in fact the title of the book of Elbridge Colby. The book was released last year and my guest today is co-founder and principal of the Marathon Initiative, a policy initiative focused on developing strategies to prepare the United States for an era of sustained great power competition. He's the author of this really, really excellent book we are going to talk about a little bit later, um, released by Yale University Press in September 2021, which the Wall Street Journal selected as one of the top 10 books of 2021. He served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Strategy and Force Development between 2017 through 2018, during which he led the development of the 2018 National Defense Strategy. Welcome to my digital talk. Thank you. Great to be with you, Belina. Really a pleasure. So this digital talk takes place in cooperation with Bharat Varta, one of India's leading podcast producers in politics society. And today's topic is very much dedicated to the American geopolitics and, of course, uh, the future American defense strategy. So first question um, to you, dear Bridge, is actually what are the fundamental geopolitical goals and, of course, premises of the American grand strategy in the 21st century? What is your assessment also? Uh, would you actually also update or add something, given that the book was published uh, last year and given also your work for uh, the 2018 National Defense uh, Strategy? Well, great. Really wonderful to be with you, Valina. You're such an important and visionary thinker. Uh, so it's a real pleasure to be on with you and your, and your listeners. I guess my, my clarifying question would be, are, are you asking for my assessment of what America's grand strategy actually is or what it should be? First, uh, the, the state of uh, arts as of now, of course, and then uh, your recommendation, uh, your normative uh, assessment as Got it. how it should okay. be. So I think um, we are in a transitional phase. I mean, the fundamental reality is the fact that, um, you know, we no longer have the sort of super abundance of power, certainly military power, but also economic power that we you know, thought we may have enjoyed in the in the years after the collapse of the Soviet Union, so over the last generation, so that we can't handle all the potential threats, essentially on our own with sort of relatively modest contributions from a few of our allies like the United Kingdom and Australia. That that world is is gone. I think there is a, a, a definitely that recognition has uh, begun to sunk in, uh, sink in. It's be, it, it is becoming internalized, but there's sort of a stages of grief. Um, phenomenon going on right now where people just kind of can't, especially sort of probably actually, especially older, uh, you know, people in their many <laughs> older people or positions of influence, including the president of the United States. Um, and, you know, they kind of find it very hard, I think, to, to let that sort of the, the world of unipolarity go. Um, you know, I'll say this, I think where we need to go is a very strict focus on China and Asia, because that's what is most important to Americans' interests, obviously. We want to think about our interests in an enlightened way, but my, the, I, I uh, paraphrase a Henry Kissinger joke. He says that only in America is to is being a realist and epithet, uh, although maybe in, in post-Cold post War Europe too, 
but uh, but I adjust that a little bit. Only in America is it considered uh, an epithet to say that you're you know looking after Americans' interests in in the world. And but that's what we need to do. We need to be much more clearly and concretely connected. And by far the most significant challenge to Americans' interests in the world is the potential for China to dominate the world's largest market area. China is the largest other state in the international system. It's the only other superpower. And Asia is by far the world's largest market area. And if China could attain a, a dominance over that area, it would have enormous ramifications, of course, for Europe as well, but for Americans' lives as well. We need to ensure that we prevent that from happening and only we can do it. We don't have the power, unfortunately, anymore to do that and kind of bestride the world like a colossus, that, like the way we thought we did 25 years ago. That, that, those days are gone. Unfortunately, I don't think that the current administration is fully um, embraced this. I think there are elements in the administration that recognize this problem, particularly in the Pentagon, you know, uh, maybe some in the National Security Council. But I think their behavior and their, and their response to the uh, Russian uh, threat to Ukraine, uh, as well as the indications in the Middle East, suggest that they do not appreciate fully the need to focus and also more fully the, the, the need to prioritize our hard power and particularly our military position in the Pacific. Um, I think this, the administration today uh, see, has a fundamentally different theory of the case. I'm happy to get into that, that I think is, is, uh, is uh, fallacious, is, is erroneous and, and will, will, will uh, not, not serve us well uh, because we do, we do really need to prioritize uh, and, and we'll need to draw down our commitments in other theaters, especially our military commitments, uh, including in Europe. But what would be your also your recommendation in a normative uh, uh, in normative terms? What could yeah. be done better? I mean, you are implying, of course, that this kind of global power um, global power capabilities need probably to be focused uh, more on the Eastern Asian terrain, right? Because when right. you say Asia, you don't mean all of it, uh, the Eurasian landmass, and then South Asia, where United States have basically, by the withdrawal from Afghanistan, uh, re well, uh, refrained from a military footprint, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. With the power projection towards Central Asia as right. of now. So you probably mean, uh, or yeah. what exactly do you mean? Yeah, I mean <laughs> the first island chain. No, you're exactly right. I mean, the model is that the, the, the key theater, and I'm of the view that, you know, as Churchill put it, and Churchill changed his positions on lots of things, but I think he was right about this. He said, if you get things right, in the decisive theater, then you can put things right everywhere else afterwards. Um, so if you get things, you know, and that's why we had a Europe first uh, policy in World War II. Uh, we didn't perfectly implement it because we were so much more powerful along with our allies than, than Nazi Germany, but, uh, and, and, and the Axis, but that was, our, that was our strategy, even though the Japanese had attacked us, that was the correct assessment. Um, the, the critical theater of the world is uh, particularly East Asia, because Asia writ large is the world's largest geoeconomic area, but the critical theater for Asia will be, will be East and Southeast Asia, because that's where Chinese power projection is more con most concentrated and where the most sophisticated Asian economies are, and where the linchpin of the US-led you know, anti-hegemonic coalition is going to be Japan and South Korea, as well as Australia. Um, so, but unfortunately, the, the, the situation is very grave there because the Chinese have developed not only an anti-access area denial military, but also a, um, a power, increasingly a power projection military designed to first subordinate Taiwan, but then uh, as necessary, uh, intimidate other countries and if necessary, subordinate other countries into, um, you know, sort of accepting China's, China's hegemony. So that has to, the United States needs to hold the line at the first island chain. 
which is to say Japan, uh, Taiwan, Philippines line, which has been our, our line. Because you know, the thing about the Pacific is it's very large, but almost all of the wealth is concentrated on the Western edge. You know, if we hold Yap and Truck and Kwajalein and the Chinese are able to subordinate Japan, South Korea and Taiwan, that's not a, that's not a winning proposition for us. So the military situation is very severe, and what we need is a military strategy of denial, and that's a pretty that's a high that's a high standard because we need to be able to defeat defeat a conventional invasion of say Taiwan by the Chinese. This is we cannot rely on horizontal escalation or any of these kind of harebrained ideas. At the same time, that gives us a you know there's a logical way of looking at South Asia, which and I know there's a lot of Indian listeners here. Uh, South Asia is critical importance essentially because of India, but India is a, a autonomous power. And I, I wrote a piece in the Hindustan Times last weekend, kind of laying out basically my idea, which is a, a division of labor model. I mean, it's pretty intuitive, but India want, doesn't want to be in an alliance. It's you know tr- still got the non-aligned element. Great, we should enable India to stand up and be the leader in South Asia. We we will draw down. Obviously, we we withdrew from Afghanistan. Focus on the first island chain. And, and actually, a similar model is what we should pursue in Europe, uh, where NATO should and, and the Scandinavians should stand up and do something, become more like the Indians, uh, who are appropriate model. Um, but I don't, I don't see this happening to the degree that is necessary. So it's not so much that there is outright resistance that's politically meaningful in the United States to the shift, but rather the degree and urgency that's required. But of course, you know, as Shakespeare said, for want of a shoe, the kingdom was lost. Um, you know, in, in, a, in, a, in a, especially in a limited or conventional war or a, a war that might involve limited nuclear exchanges, God forbid, um, you know, relatively narrow margins can lead to outsized effects. And I mean, I think, you know, you're, you're obviously a student, great student of history, um, uh, limited, still relatively large, but limited wars can have enormous geopolitical consequences. Uh, I mean, the, the example that I'd like to point to that, that probably most resonates with what I think the Chinese, the most dangerous Chinese strategy is, is the, the wars of German unification, where uh, you know uh, Berlin was able to fight three, you know, by European standards, relatively smaller, medium-sized wars that ultimately had dramatic geopolitical consequences. I mean, really fundamental that we all lived with for over a century. Um, uh, similarly, I mean, the geopolitical situation less, but I mean, the the German invasion of of Western Europe in 1940. I mean. You know, it was a near-run thing, probably in the Ardennes, but the results were not. <laughs> so we can't screw around, is my view. We can't spread the peanut butter. And John Kirby, the press secretary, said yesterday in response to some questions, well, we can walk and shoe come at the same time. And that's what sets off my alarm bells. It's an American expression that means, oh, I can walk and I'm also chewing gum. I can do two things at the same time. Oh, it's not a big deal. Wrong. Wrong attitude. The situation is very severe in Asia. We have not... Uh, 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 reformed as much as we needed, and so now we're we're uh, we're in a serious grave situation, and yet um, we're reacting to the situation in Europe in a way that suggests business as usual. Unfortunately, well, in order to have the best American strategy uh, in defense uh, terms, right, the best U.S. defense strategy, it needs to be a response to also uh, the threats, uh, threats, risks, and uh, 
and uh, well, the whole uh, kind of uh, geopolitical and geoeconomic situation, you've outlined already um, more or less a number of problems, uh, but let's unpack it a little bit. Do you think that uh, China is en route to actually launching simultaneously both a Rimland strategy that has that uh, this, this, of course, is related mostly to the activities in the South China Sea, the Strait of uh, Taiwan, the Indo-Pacific uh, realm, um, also with the strings of pearls uh, surrounding uh, uh, and containing India, um, trying to get an access to the Indian Ocean or from both sides, Myanmar and Pakistan with the economic corridors, but at the very same time also trying to uh, actually apply uh, heartland uh, strategy uh, in the wider Eurasian landmass. Basically, given that United States will further pursue a rimland approach, uh, United States is this most successful example in the modern uh, history as a rimland uh, geopolitical power, right? Now also engaging, mm -hmm. engaging uh, alliances uh, and partnerships in the East Asian realm, uh, take the security and defense pact with uh, UK and uh, Australia into consideration. Do you think that this might become also a big problem for uh, the US defense strategy if, um, uh, if uh, you know, the combination of the both is ignored? If there is only, you know, uh, the one side of the equation being tackled as you've outlined, but then, of course, there is no possibility to uh, currently to deal with uh, the other side of the coin. I mean, the United States do, does not have a military footprint in Central Asia, has um, more or less uh, was um, was cut, uh, cut off also from uh, a possible access uh, through the South uh, Asian, uh, you know, Tehran, uh, take Afghanistan, take Iran, now also under Chinese influence. And if India does not enter a security uh, and defense pact with the United States in the long term, where United States can also put military uh, boots on the ground, let's put it that way, how do you? How would you actually um, deal with this uh, comprehensive approach that I think China is currently trying to uh, trying to actually apply in global affairs? Well, our concern is really the Rimland because that's obviously where the, the in the world island we're a maritime power, we're essentially an insular power, and most of the wealth that we need to the you know if we think about it in reductive terms the. Uh, the wealth that we need to agglomerate to ensure a sufficient anti-hegemonic coalition that will prevent China from dominating Asia can be assembled from the Rimland areas. So, of course, Japan, South Korea, Australia, India, um, uh, you know, potentially some of the Southeast Asian states like Vietnam, although you know, TBD, and then some, you know, ancillary help, particularly in the economic area, from from strong allies like like the United Kingdom and and others. Um, the heartland is Russia's problem. I, you know, I mean, from our point of view, I, I actually think it's good that we're probably good that we're out of Central Asia because now the, you know, the China, and now they've been able they've been able to concentrate on the the Russians have done them the favor of allowing the Chinese to concentrate their military development on power projection in the maritime sphere, which we need to compensate for. But you know, given Russia's behavior and decisions in recent years, I don't think we're going to be trying to solve any of Russia's problems and vice versa. Obviously, they're exacerbating our problems. Uh, quite happily right now, it looks like. So um, if anything, it's probably a good thing that they're, you know, 
operated. Now, the Russians and the Chinese appear to have some kind of a sufficient accommodation or condominium that they can work out. So the Russian intervention in Kazakhstan uh, a couple, you know, a week or two ago. Um, but, you know, I mean, the Russians are nothing if not realists. Um, you know, China's becoming much, much richer and more powerful than Russia. Yes, it's building a navy, but it also has a very significant army and air force. Um, and those capabilities can be turned anywhere. It's just a matter of intent and intent is changeable. And um, of course, it has enormous economic investments through Belt and Road that are in, in, in relevant in Central Asia. So, you know, we're going to worry about the rimlands and India is critical. I don't think we need a formal alliance. In fact, I don't think we, I don't think either of us actually wants a formal alliance. India doesn't want an alliance because it doesn't want to be bossed around and wants to take care, you know, it's, which I respect. In fact, I laud that. Um, and we don't want an alliance because most of our allies are free riders. So, you know, we want countries that put their skin into it put their shoulder into it, I should say. And India is a great example. Then they don't do it for our sake. They do it for their own sake. Perfect. So we should help that our interests are aligned and they will be for the foreseeable future because, you know, we both share a primary threat. The, the Indian chief of defense before he un had that untimely passing, he identified China as their biggest threat. And this is, I think, also, I think you'll appreciate, I think this is an error in, in Russia's assessment of the future geopolitical environment. I mean, I don't want to sound presumptuous to judge Russians' own perception of their foreign policy, but I, my impression is the Russians believe the world is becoming more multipolar and that will give them greater space to operate. But I think this is a misassessment. I think the world will be largely bipolar, particularly in your, the kind of Eastern two thirds of Eurasia, because the gravitational force that China exerts will kind of put countries in one direction or another. And India is a perfect example. I mean, we're not, you know, Americans like to talk about shared values and all that stuff, but Look, I mean, India and the United States are bound together by shared fear, which is the most reliable form of foreign policy, which is of China dominating Asia. And similarly with Japan. Um, and I think ultimately South Korea will come along. Uh, it certainly should. So I think we will have a very good relationship. It, 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 it will continue to grow. I mean, the Americans would be stupid to sanction India, of course, which I, I don't put it past us because we do stupid things for, uh, with disturbing uh, re regularity. But um, but that's, you know, I'm trying to help change that. But I think, yeah, I mean, I think if, you know, China, um, uh, if China pursues internally, and I, I doubt they can resist the urge, you know, they have, the, you know, there's going to be economic interest, there's going to be political interest, they're hopefully going to find a pretty formidable, uh, hopefully very formidable defense capability along the first island chain, the Japanese are finally getting religion, they need to do more. But um, but that's going to that's going to create problems for for China's other neighbors and and ultimately Russia. I, I doubt that Russia will um, want to just rely on Beijing's tender mercies over time. Um, and the, and the, and the power balance, of course, is going to be lopsided in China's favor. So Russia is going to need to have other options. Um, you've spoken uh, at the beginning about the strategy of denial. Uh, can you give uh, some concrete examples of uh, the strategy of denial for our viewers and listeners derived from your book? Uh, also, also, you mentioned Taiwan. Do you foresee actually a direct military attack by China um, against Taiwan in this decade? Or do you think that it's going to, um, to I mean, all this kind of uh, penetration and, um, and also threats will be kept on? Under, uh, under the level of a 
kinetic um, kinetic uh, warfare, so to say, when it comes to Taiwan. Sure. Yeah. So denial. I mean, the, the you know, Clausewitz said the uh, you know the the military object should always have the political object in mind. Any military action to be rational should have the political object in mind. So I mean, <clears throat> a defense strategy is ultimately to be sensible and rational should should pursue some political objective. And the political objective is one of is one of denial, which is denial of any state uh, the ability to dominate one of the world's key regions. And the fact of the, the fact of the matter is, is that world productivity is concentrated in a few areas. I mean, if you look at a map of GDP kind of concentrations, basically East Asia, South Asia, Southeast Asia to some extent is growing. Uh, Europe, you know, largely in the kind of Western and Central areas, and then North America itself. Those are the places that matters a little bit in South America, a little bit in the Persian Gulf, but those places are basically, everything else is going to, the, the fate of the rest of the world will be determined by those because th those areas are so productive that they could, um, they, could, they could generate and sustain large military forces and other forms of power to, to work their will on the rest of the world. And so that we need to make sure that those, and by far the most important of those, as I said, is Asia. So our, so our goal needs to be to deny that of Asia. Europe is, Borrell himself said that Europe is going to decline from 20% to about 25 or so percent to 20%, uh, 10%, excuse me, from 25 to 10% of global GDP in the next 20 years. So, I mean, Europe is important, but it's a lot less important than Asia. So that's the ultimate goal is, okay, deny. And that's a negative goal, which is good because, you know, I never was a fan of, you know, the George W. Bush approach or the Madeleine Albright kind of thing, which is that we need to have, you know, imprint our way on the world for a variety of reasons, you know, and, and their imprudence is, 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 is a sufficient conviction of that view, I think, but, you know, the basic goal, I think the, 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 the enduring goal and the, and the rational, reasonable goal for American foreign policy is to deny um, you know, some other state, whatever its complexion, obviously it's worse when it's a Marxist-Leninist dictatorship, but I don't want any state to be so powerful that it can kind of get intrude into our national life and undermine our freedoms, which is the purpose of our country. Um, and so that's the goal. Uh, denial in the second sense is a military form of denial. So what is the military strategy that's required to substantiate that political strategy. Well, we need to think then about what China's strategy is. Basically, it's a coalition model. It's classic balance of power, okay? You got a guy who may take over the place. You get a couple of people together, whether they're your old friends or not. I mean, Vietnam, we fought a horrible war with, but now we're in, our interests are aligned. Get them together, work together, and you stop this, this, this big guy from taking over the place, okay? That's kind of happening, which is good. Um, but China, of course, has, a, has an approach, and this is, this is where the Bismarck analogy becomes relevant, is I think the, the danger here is that China would pursue what I think of as a focused and sequential strategy, basically a series of short, or potentially short, but kind of limited sharp wars designed to collapse the coalition because China wants to avoid, rationally, I would imagine, wants to avoid what Hitler did, which is declare war on everybody, and then ultimately you're, you, know, you shoot yourself in a bunker. Not, not what China wants. Instead, if China can fight a couple of short, sharp wars, it might be able to collapse that coalition, particularly by showing that the United States, which must, by dint of our size, play the leading role in Asia, um, then, it can, then it can get the results, those, those dramatic geoeconomic ben geopolitical benefits and geoeconomic for relatively limited investment of military force. And so I think that's what we need to prepare for. And the key then is to deny China its ability to bring that degree of successful pressure on our allies within the coalition, particularly, because that's the ones who are, you know, our word is connected to. So obviously Japan, South Korea, Australia, Philippines, um, but also Taiwan, which I, I basically treat as essentially an ally, I think at this point, it's pretty clear. 
Um, and denial means that we need to deny China's ability to generate that degree of leverage that's required to, to get Taiwan to give up and basically go over. And that's a political, that's a contextual and relative standard. And that gets to your last question. And I think actually that, uh, uh, you know, Taiwan is very unlikely and almost, almost impossible to imagine Taiwan giving up short of military force because nobody on Taiwan wants to give up their hard-earned freedoms to live under Xi Jinping. Be sent to re-education camps and have all your social media, your, your social media, everything on your phone monitored and what you say to your wife and all that. So nobody wants that. And in fact, China's strategy to pursue that has probably not only failed, but probably been counterproductive over the last 20 years. I mean, the sunflower movement in Taiwan back in 2016 was a, sort of a taste of that. And then, of course, China completely blew up its credibility that it could be believed as a, you know, uh, unification with peaceful unification by what it's done in Hong Kong. I mean, you'd have to be an idiot to, you know, think to believe that China will honor its political commitments because they completely violated them in Hong Kong, uh, which was even like an internationalized commitment. So nobody and there people on Taiwan aren't stupid, so nobody wants that. Um, China knows that too, which is I think why China is increasingly looking to military instruments. Um, and there, I think in reality, when you really just boil it down, China would would have to invade and occupy the country, because you know. As Napoleon said, apropos of where you are, if you want to take, if you want to, you know, if you want Vienna, take Vienna, you know, don't mess around. Like, you know, George W. Bush, I think wrongly, but George W. Bush wanted Saddam Hussein to give up his WMD, alleged WMD. Well, okay, go to Baghdad. Bad idea, but that's how he got the leverage. And, you know, there's, there isn't going to be this kind of ninja sort of clever move, cyber attacks and all this kind of song and dance. No, if they're going to do it to Taiwan, they're going to have to use very serious military force. And I think if, if I were in Beijing, I, would, I wouldn't mess around with a blockade that could get out of hand. I don't know how that's going to go. I would just go. And they're building the military to do it. They're, they're building air assault forces, of course. If they have some areas of their amphibious capability that apparently are still lacking, but could probably be plugged in a relatively short amount of time. And of course, Admiral Davidson famously said last year that you know by 2027 at latest they'll 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 probably have some the capability so it's um you know and Mao Zedong wanted to take Taiwan back it wasn't for lack of will it was for lack of capability but now they're going to be pretty close to that I think we're already in the window where they might have the capability who knows but it's definitely possible uh, so, okay, obviously no military attack. I, um, I agree with you actually that it does, it makes little sense for uh, Xi Jinping to actually, uh, well, try to uh, attack uh, Taiwan militarily because of uh, the unforeseen second order of events and uh, effects uh, that such attack might have actually on uh, his domestic leverage, I mean, trying to also deal with all the repercussions from the pandemic, now trying to also solidify uh, his power ahead of the very important, uh, you know, uh, Congress of the Communist Party, trying to also remove political opponents. But I do think that one potential risk where we should be aware of is which we should be aware of is actually this uh, long-term penetration of the social fabric of the political process, uh, infiltration of uh, different interest groups, uh, trying to uh, undermine the political and uh, social, you know, 
fabric of the you know of uh, Taiwan, because there uh, there of course they have already the good example from Hong Kong. You've seen you've seen how efficient uh, actually how quick and efficient they took uh, Hong Kong under control and uh, there of course uh, defense strategy would not be you know the right way how to approach this and um, do you think that uh, because you also mentioned free riders and currently we are also in a situation where there are a lot of fluid uh, geopolitical alliances and partnerships and uh, well uh, in fact in uh, Asia specifically in East Asia there are new formations like take the example of Australia even though that Australia had a strong geoeconomic relationship with China they took a side uh, even though that they were trying to balance between Washington and Beijing, they were trying to, you know, navigate and uh, take the benefits from both partnerships, uh, they took a side. Do you think that other, other um, Eastern Asian and specifically Indo-Pacific partners will, will at some point be confronted with a either or choice where they have to take a side and whether Taiwan won't be this kind of trigger for that when they see that, uh, you know, things are really getting serious. As I said, under the radar of a direct military attack, you have a, you have a full spectrum of uh, all other possibilities that uh, China will, I think, explore and try to apply on Taiwan in order to, you know, weaken uh, Taiwan and set an example specifically as you said you know because China is also having uh, its uh, strategy of denial right trying to deny Taiwan the opportunity also to reach out to partners of uh, United States take the example now with Europe as well Lithuania Slovenia trying also to engage with Taiwan and to you know um, to create a political, political, uh, you know, negative scenario for uh, China. I mean, creating a negative uh, image on China's geoeconomic interests. A, a very broad spectrum, but uh, yeah. uh, I think that this is something that we need to anticipate for uh, for this decade when it when we talk about the American response. So I, I have, I think I have a somewhat different view. I think that uh, military action and invasion are much more plausible than I think you do. And I think the basic reason is because I think the vast sort of range of things that you're talking about won't work for China. And I think China already knows. In fact, Australia is a perfect example. They have enormous economic leverage over Australia. And, and the result of what they've been trying to turn that economic leverage into political uh, results has been has backfired dramatically. I mean, um, and something similar with India. And in fact, their use of economic sanctions against Japan and, and Taiwan uh, uh, and elsewhere has largely backfired and definitely not turned into economic, uh, political results. So I'm actually not that worried. And, and this, is, this has a little bit of a paradoxical effect. Um, so I tend to be more sanguine about trade with China, uh, but much more worried about the military balance than, a lot, than I would say the conventional wisdom. Because I think, look, our experience is that economic sanctions, even pretty severe economic sanctions, are very limited in their efficacy. I mean, look, we've had an embargo on Cuba for over 60 years for almost nothing to show for it. Um, we've sanctioned North Korea. Obviously, we sanctioned Vietnam, North Vietnam. Uh, even Iran, we've had difficulty. And that's on rel a relatively narrow ass. We're not talking about what, what would be at issue, say, over Taiwan would be full-scale capitulation, would be total surrender. And... Embargoes almost never work. Blockades never work. The Germans tried it on Britain. I mean, yes, Britain is resolute, but 
And that's actually why I think it's actually kind of hard to find examples of blockades, mostly because when somebody is that is powerful enough to pull off a blockade, they just invade because it's easier, you know, and it's more reliable. So that that should give us some comfort, but I because it means that, you know, I mean, you know, the Chinese cut off pineapple imports from Taiwan recently, and I think it's basically backfired, you know. I mean, they Wen got decisively reelected. So I'm not so worried about that, but that what it does mean is that uh, I mean you know it's something to pay attention to. But I think I think we're going to have some selective decoupling model. But what it does mean is that the military option is much more attractive now. Hong Kong, Hong Kong has happened the way it is, and I use this idea in, in my book, this idea of imagined wars. You know, when Margaret Tha Margaret Thatcher wanted to keep Hong Kong, but Deng Xiaoping was like, forget about it, and the reason why was because the imagined wars because the United Kingdom fully understood that it would get completely smoked by the PRC, even in 1984, let alone today. I mean, the reality is simply that China occupied Taiwan, I mean, Hong Kong. It was already an occupied territory. They were just voluntarily not imposing their will, which they then violated their, their agreement. So, you know, Kowloon is part of the mainland. Hong Kong, I guess, like probably you know, a mile off the mainland or something. Taiwan is different. Taiwan is 100 miles from, from the Chinese mainland, obviously not the offshore islands, but they don't really matter. So, um, so I think this is a much different situation. Ch China would need to first impose its will militarily. Uh, and so I do think that's more probable. In terms of Xi's own you know, political incentives, one way or the other, I just, I don't know which way those cut. You know, Sometimes people make the wag the dog argument that maybe he'll want to try to start a war to distract from domestic problems. But I'll, then you could say that maybe sometimes people don't want to get in the foreign war. I just personally, I think it tends to be kind of a wash. Um, you know, so I don't know. I mean, one thing that does, though, about Xi Jinping is we can see that he's committed, he's resolute, and he's a tough guy. I mean, the guy grew up in a, in a cave, you know, for five years. His father was purged, yet he's remained loyal to the party. We know he cares about Taiwan. He's communicating that. He said to the, to the PLA the other day, I want you to be prepared for an actual war, like, that's not what like the Italian prime minister is telling the Italian military. Like that, that's something different, you know? So, um, so I'm, I'm quite worried. Um, and then um, I think your last question was, I, I, it was something about, I'm forgetting, sorry. I, I, hopefully that's enough, but I, there was a lot. That, in there, that so. is enough for, for now because yeah. we have a, to unpack a lot more. I mean, okay. you already outlined uh, actually uh, so many, uh, you gave us already so many, of, so much food for thought. And I'm seeing also that uh, questions are coming in in the chat. Uh, but uh, first, I would like to ask uh, to go back to India and then also uh, address the issues we are experiencing and witnessing in Europe. Uh, I argue in the case of India are personally argue that India will not be in the luxury situation of, uh, you know, pursuing another non-alignment uh, policy during Cold War 2.0, during another great power competition, as it did um, uh, in the competition between the Soviet Union and uh, United States. So I think that at some point, and given the different reality right now, given the fact that now there is a geopolitical and geoeconomic rapprochement between Pakistan and uh, China, which is completely blocking the, um, the um, basically the access uh, of uh, India towards uh, Central Asia and then trying, you know, to 
to come up with its own connectivity projects that also connect uh, India with Central Asia and Russia, I do think that they will have to take a decision this time. They will have to actually align with the United States and mm -hmm. they, it will be a United States, it will, won't be Russia to support India in the case of a military, direct military uh, conflict with uh, China because Russia will be doing what it has always done, uh, you know, supporting both sides, sending arms to both sides. Uh, this was the case with the last military tension. So I would like to to um, to hear your opinion on that. I mean, do you foresee a situation where there will maybe it's not going to be called an alliance? Uh, you've said already, you know, probably yeah. this will be a different kind of alliances, but where we will see a clear defense cooperation, the trend is already positive, but clear defense cooperation where we will see American military presence on the ground in order to actually counter, um, you know, counter the Chinese uh, increasing uh, influence. What is your take on that? Yeah. Well, the only part I, I thoroughly agree, except except for that part about American boots on the ground, we don't need American boots on the ground, except to help, you know, kind of like contractors and help. Us. I mean, basically, in the standards of say pre-1914 language, I think the United States and India are already allies. I mean, we're closer than Britain and France were in 1913, but absolutely our strategic interests are fully aligned. And I, when I talk to senior Indian officials or hear from senior Indian officials and officers, and this is why they have high respect and I would say a fear of what the Chinese are capable of and their right to do so. I mean, you know, the fundamental fact is that India has grown. It's one of the most important countries in the world. So it's more, more important and more relevant in a way that it wasn't in the Cold War when it really was a kind of a tertiary theater in South Asia. India now is one of the top four economies in the world, but it's a lot behind China. You know, 20 years ago, they were a lot closer, but China's grown a lot faster. Now, who knows what the future will hold? But for the, you know, for the medium term, for the next decade or two, that's pretty much locked in. So India needs help. And this is what Russia, you know, Russia's not strong enough. And Russia's in a terrible fight with the Americans and the Euro Europeans. So it's going to be afraid of fully angering China. So obviously, Russia's not going to be there in a way to help India enough. Now, I'm not saying anything about the military relationship and the arms issue, whatever. But I just mean at a geopolitical level. The only country that can really help India is America. Well, and our interest is also in having India be part of this anti-hegemonic coalition. And this is not an Asian NATO. Actually, frankly, if I were recreating NATO, I probably would create it in a very different way because it's a ton of political overhead for actually relatively little military output. Most of the European states are free riders. It's actually not irrational. Uh, it's pretty rational from their point of view, but it, it, don't, it doesn't work anymore. So India is the opposite of a free rider. India is like, go take a hike, America. We're gonna do this by ourselves. I'm like, great, that's awesome. Love that. You know, same with Vietnam and Israel. That's the kind of model. The South Koreans actually do a, a, a good job at, despite being a US ally. But, you know, our biggest problem in a way right now is Japan, Taiwan, Ger and Germany, the three close allies that, you know, are causing enormous problems for us and uh, many others because they're not pulling their weight. Now, the Japanese are, and the Taiwans are slowly improving, but Germany remains a huge problem, which will, which will only get more severe and could, could lead to a genuine crisis. If this continues, but um, but India, I think, you know, we're we're headed for a beautiful future together. Again, yes, we're both democracies. Yes, there's lots of Indians in America and so forth. But you know, it's really bound together by our shared concern and more than concern, fear of of China. So I think 
but you know, where, what I would see this as being about and the, the way I lay it out in the Hindustan Times was a division of labor that India really obviously handles its own defense, but also South Asia. So you know, I wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal a couple of years ago when there was a flare up with Pakistan and all these Americans were wringing their hands and saying, we need to mediate between India and Pakistan. I said, no, we take India's side. Pakistan is small potatoes compared to the, you know, and, and Pakistan's made it bed with China, which is not surprising. I mean, in a sense, what's happened is we flipped ally, uh, alignments, right? In the Cold War, it was us with, with Pakistan, Thailand, communist China, um, you know, uh, against the Soviet Union. And now our problem is different. It's China. So we're with India and not Pakistan. We're with Vietnam and not Cambodia. Um, and, you know, at some point in the future, uh, ideally, we would have Russia involved in some way, probably informally, not a full alignment. And we're not going to, we're not going to overpay for it. But at some point, that's going to, and, and that's where the Indian relationship with Russia may come in handy over time is because, you know, at some point we are going to need to reverse Nixon to China or, or, you know, maybe they send their, maybe it's Brezhnev to Washington. I don't know, but I, you know, just looking at it from a structural geopolitical point of view, doesn't make a lot of sense. So, you know, and if something doesn't make a lot of sense, it'll probably change at some point, but it matters when and how. And uh, you actually pointed to one of the most sensitive issues, that is the issue of a possible American retreat from Europe, because as you've pointed out, America, uh, you know, Europe is currently in a situation where it's uh, shrinking in terms of true economic clout, share of global GDP, aging uh, population, no skin in the game, you know, talking the talk, but never walking the walk, not even capable of actually securing uh, its own direct vicinity to the south and to the east, just to give the example from a strategy of ring of France and uh, basically promoting uh, stability, security and prosperity in the direct neighborhood. Uh, this is the European security strategy from 2003. We are now in a situation 20 years later, because I've been following these debates for the last 20 years, and even longer, uh, we are now in the situation of a complete ring of fire, not being able to actually prevent any of the military conflicts or direct uh, tensions to the south. I mean, take the whole MENA region into consideration. And of course, what we've been observing now with the relaunched military escalation, because since 2014, we've been in a perpetual state of uh, imminent military uh, attack or reinvasion or incursions or separatist movements or take uh, the, also the frozen conflicts into consideration. So basically um, the whole periphery of Europe, <laughs> except for Great Britain, which now exited and to the north, we are going to face also an increasing tension uh, coming from China and Russia, of course, in a coordinated manner to control also the Arctic at some point of time, because there will be probably in 10 or 20 years from now, also the opportunity for an alternative maritime route that would bypass the US controlled maritime routes in the Indo-Pacific, right? So. Do Europeans realize that there is going to be an American retreat? No matter how this episode yeah. is going to be solved right, right now, that there is a systemic layer to what Putin has considered doing 
starting with December last year, which is being ignored in the European capitals. And that is that, in fact, the Russian president is trying to already upgrade Russia's position in the long game, in the systemic competition, trying to um, present Russia as this uh, indispensable player that none of uh, both systemic rivals can actually ignore if they want to win the systemic competition. So nobody wants Russia, but nobody can actually accept that Russia is part of the rival's bloc. So this kind of logic, right? Not because of the positive appeal, but because of the realities on the ground. Do Europeans realize that what needs to happen in the European capitals in order for uh, them to realize that there's going to be an American retreat, whether we like it or not, that America is going to move towards uh, East uh, Asia and the Indo-Pacific, as you've outlined that. And what role do you foresee for European powers, probably Great Britain, France to some extent, Germany is completely missing in this equation. Um, If they want to still play a geopolitical role in the 21st century. What needs to be changed? Well, more than a geopolitical role, if they want to be secure. I mean, look, let's start out. I mean, you and I were talking before. I mean, I think that if you have a friend who has a serious medical condition, um, are you a better friend if you just help this person ignore the doctor's advice, maybe they have cancer or they have heart disease. And you say, don't worry about it. Just ignore it. Like, just enjoy life. You know, is that a better friend or is it a better friend to be like, Bob, you got to take what your doctor said. Seriously, let's look at it now. I'm going to help you. I'm going to work with you. I can't do everything for you. It's your, it's the medical conditions for you, but we got to grapple with it. To me, I would want the latter. I would want a friend who cared about me and my well-being, right? This is the logic that I take. And I think the people who do the other way are actually hurting their friends. And this is the the take that is too ascendant in Washington. It is um, also not uncommon among Republicans, but it's particularly pronounced from the current administration. The fundamental reality of the world is, I mean, you you and I can see it. We we can all see it. It's pretty simple at the end of the day. It's China's huge. It's huge. It's like another Jupiter. For the first time in 150 years, we are not the world's largest economy by far and away. And people, it's, you know, it's a mystery to me because people still act in Europe like, oh yeah, China's a big, not really that, you know, it's kind of the implication, it's not really that dangerous or important or Asia's, obviously Europe, the transatlantic bond we all know is still the most, and it's like, no, no, I'm thinking about Americans' interests and Americans' interests are going to be where most of the money is, where the market is, and that's Asia and that's China. And anyone who's been to China will be impressed at what they've been able to do. I mean, I don't like communism, to say the least. I hate it, actually. But you cannot deny what the Chinese have done. I mean, the Chinese people, despite the Communist Party in most respects, but uh, under the governance of the Chinese Communist Party, particularly under Deng Xiaoping, it's extraordinary. And if you look at their neighbors, you know, it doesn't take, you don't have to be some, you know, PhD economist to see. It's like, well, the Japanese and the South Koreans and the Taiwans, their neighbors who are, you know, cut from the same cloth, basically, you know, in the grand scheme of things, they're very rich. So, you know, yeah, maybe the Chinese economy will hit, hit some, you know, turbulence or slow down, but, you know, they're likely to probably be pretty much at the highest level of, of, of world economic development, which is where Asia was until about the 16th century. So, okay, that's the reality. 
Europe is a lot smaller. America, as I said before, this cornerstone balancer idea, we play a vital, vital role in Asia that only we can play. You know, not even Japan and India are remotely strong enough to take on China without the United States in some way. And, you know, okay, so our economy is about the same size, it's gonna be smaller by a lot of metrics, especially if there's pressure on the dollar. Um, we're not increasing the defense budget. This administration is increasing the defense budget. And by the way, most of our defense budget goes to kind of, you know, perpetuating the status quo. I mean, most differences, we have a very large army, most of which is stationed in the United States to defend against Mexico. I don't know. I mean, like, and it's not like we can just move it all to Europe because it would need all kinds of enablers and logistics and ships and aircraft that we don't have. So, and we're not going to buy. I mean, it's just not going to happen. So um, that means we have scarcity. And in a condition of scarcity, we're going to focus on Asia. Okay, well, the situation is very severe over Taiwan. You have uniformed officials saying we're on track to lose, which is pretty rare. I mean, and people are kind of acting like, oh, yeah, well, well we're handling, you know. No, no, that's a huge problem. And so that's the reality. We're going to shift to Asia. So there's two questions. There's two options. One is to shift. We already passed the point where we could do it very gracefully and all that. But one is the path to do it at least with some integration with the Europeans and some warning and taking time. And, but that requires being frank with the Europeans. Like we're not gonna be here. It's not 1999 anymore. You guys really need to do it. Like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm serious. I'm not joking, right? The other one is that we ignore the problem and we continue doing what we used to be doing, which is what the Biden administration is signaling it's gonna do. And then the military situation continues to deteriorate in the Pacific. And then we essentially have a variant of what happened to the Brits in 1967, where they were committed to the Gulf monarchies until they couldn't afford it anymore. And then they were like, we're out of here. And that is a distinct possibility. And just because Joe Biden doesn't want that to happen doesn't mean it's not going to happen. He may be forced to do it, either by dint of strategic circumstances, political circumstances, or future administrations. And a lot of this is an age issue. The people who are, tend to be older haven't you know, but at some point that generation will go and people, you know, younger are just not, you know, I, I mean, it's human nature. They tend to be more adapted, right? I mean, God willing, someday I'll run into that problem. But, you know, we all, that, that's the reality. And it's true across the political spectrum. Um, so those are the two options. And Europe, I think, would be worse if it were a dramatic shift and Europe were not prepared. Um, the solution for the Europeans to do what is completely, absolutely within their power to do, which is develop you know, a reasonable military capability to deny Russia's ability to invade and occupy territory in Eastern NATO, and maybe the Finlands and Sweden. Finland does a good job anyway. The Poles do a great job on this, and I applaud them. The Brits do a good job. The French do a pretty good job. Some of the other Nor Norwegians uh, and, and the Swedes are doing better. Um, this is well within, I mean, Europe dwarfs Russia in GDP. Now, sure, the Russians are willing to spend more, but you know, they're not spending like the Soviets. I mean, Europe could definitely do this. And by the way, they did in the past. Most of the Europe, Western European NATO countries had very formidable militaries, uh, less formidable than we wanted, but in, 19, in the 1980s, you know? And so what's this, the problem? Germany. Germany is the problem. So Germany holds in its fate and it holds in its hands the future of Europe and in some ways the future of many across the world. I, I find Germany's behavior um, bewildering would put it nicely, but certainly not something that I would want to praise. You know, I, I think they talk a lot about collective security, but their actions bespeak a profound 
self-regard. And okay, at this point, as Gerard Herrault, the, the former French ambassador of the United States, I think persuasively argued, let's just take that as a given. So if that's, the, if that's how Germany is going to behave, Nord Stream 2, I mean, but bigger than Nord Stream 2, not having a serious military. The, Ger the West Germans, two-thirds of the current country, had 12 active divisions on the inner German border when they were threatened. When Germany was threatened, they had a military. Now they don't have a military. So, you know, I mean, people talk about history. Well, history wasn't such a problem in 1988 when there were still people alive who'd been in the Second World War. No, that's kind of weird. And now the people who need their help are the people who were the subject to the depredations during the Second World War. So, okay, I don't get it. Moralizing doesn't work, I guess. But what the United States has to deal with this reality, it's a recalcitrant Germany that's not willing to do it, that could easily solve the problem. I think we just need to be frank and say, this is, where we're, this is what's going to happen. We're not going to put more troops in to Europe, uh, even with the Ukraine crisis. We will help those. We'll help the Ukrainians. We'll help, certainly help the Poles. We'll help anybody who wants to in whatever format, but we cannot keep going on like this. And if we don't start now, it will only get worse. And so that's the, that's the model. I think it's a totally feasible model and it's, you know, but it's up to the Europeans. Here's the issue. A lot of Europeans think that people like me are bluffing that at the end of the day, the Americans will always be there. Well, you could be right. Joe Biden, certainly it's a pretty good bet with Joe Biden, but President Biden, but I don't think that's a good bet in the future. I certainly don't think it's the right choice. I don't think it's the right choice for Americans. And if you're betting against Americans' long-term interest, look what happened in Afghanistan. You know, at the end of the day, I mean, President Trump wanted to do it, but President Biden ended up pulling off the Band-Aid. I thought it was catastrophically handled, but it was the right decision. Why would you be treated differently? Yeah, NATO, okay. But, you know, I mean, if something really doesn't make sense, and, you know, just a final thought. I mean, the way I think about this is, you know, alliances... They're not, you know, Biden uses this term sacred. I mean, the sacred obligation that President Biden has is to Americans. They're the ones who elect him. He, they're the ones to whom he is accountable. If, and, and alliances are more like close business partnerships is the way I would think about it. Like an old, I don't know, in European law, but in, a, in American law, traditionally you would have you know, private partnerships of banks or law firms and the partners would, would, would hold them together. And there was a fiduciary duty. There were strong personal ties. People would play tennis or whatever. But if one of the partners was not holding up his end of the bargain, there was account there's accountability and it's a business relationship. And that's, what, that's where we are now. And, and our, um, a number of our, uh, particularly Germany, are, are not. And, and um, you know, at the end of the day, we, we'll need to make a decision based on what's in the best interest of, of Americans. Well, indeed. I mean, many forget, uh, for instance, that there have been uh, 300,000 uh, Russian, so Soviet troops, actually, during the Cold War in the German Democratic Republic, right. threatening directly the Federal Republic of Germany. So in a sense, nothing has changed in the Russian approach. I mean, hard power uh, has been always part of the portfolio of threats and trying to actually uh, gain politically uh, by using the threat of power. Uh, what is really surprising is actually the inability of Europeans, or at, let's say not all of them, of course, not all European uh, member states, but uh, the inability to actually, uh, well, adequately react to a threat, uh, you know, uh, to a threat of use of uh, power. Um, do you foresee, actually, this is uh, probably the last question related to Europe, uh, because I see also a few questions uh, in the chat which I really want to address. Um, do you foresee um, the emergence of a conflict, conflictual line 
um, among the European NATO members uh, based on the geopolitical um, interests of uh, United States, China, Russia, because you mentioned Germany, but mm -hmm. France has been, uh, to be fair, France has been in a geopolitical rapprochement with Russia already in 2020. The French president announced uh, many, many times, actually, uh, very openly that uh, he doesn't see uh, China as being a threat to Europe. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, uh, wants, wanted to actually engage with Russia based on French geopolitical interests, uh, take Africa, take uh, the so Mediterranean region and so on and so forth. Uh, do you foresee this kind of emergence of conflictual lines uh, among the European uh, NATO members? Because Central and Eastern European members, as you've outlined, will never subjugate to the rule of another communist party. They will always actually see Russia and probably increasingly also China for other reasons. I mean, for the reason of the authoritarian rule and the communist party's rule, um, uh, blackmailing strategies of China. So they will actually um, align with the United States because they see the United States as the sole security guarantor. They don't see Germany or France as a security guarantor for their territorial integrity, for their security. And at some point, we might end up with an Anglosphere and a continental block of European NATO members uh, due to their different approach to China and Russia. Do you foresee this kind of scenario? I, I think it's very possible. I mean, I, I think NATO could end up like uh, the Holy Roman Empire, where it's a it's a formal shell uh, that has some utility, but it actually conceals what's really going on, or, or it doesn't conceal, but it's actually happening within that formal framework. Um, I don't think that would be good from our perspective, or even more from Europe's perspective. And so, what I I laid this out in a piece in International Politik, the the German uh, foreign policy journal, about a little over a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago. It's kind of a new bargain. That you know, um, you know, for the U.S., the key issue is how is Europe going to relate to China and the, and the economic spheres? Are they going to be more aligned with us, or are they going to be kind of try to be neutralist or or align, let alone align with China? And then, how much of a security um, sort of consumer, from our point of view, Europe is? And on the latter, you know, that's got to be up to Europe. But but I think the New Deal that I would make because it, you know we're going to look at Europe as a as a as a broad entity based on whether it's in our interest to do so, right? So, you know, there's sort of this brain dead idea that, that America should always support greater European integration. And I mean, I don't take, I mean, I have my own views, but I don't take a position on what Europeans views on, you know, Euroskeptic or integrationist. That's not our, that's, that's the concern of Europeans, basically. But I do have a view on whether Europe as a cohesive entity is working with us or against us. And so the fundamental mystery of President Macron, and I really don't understand it, is that like his, he has like a self-defeating approach because the logical way to get more European integration is not to alienate the United States, but actually rather to try to leverage America's interest in turning to Asia to get us on board. That's the bargain, right? That's the bargain I'm laying out. You know, that meanwhile, they're talking about a third pole. I mean, that's crazy because it's like, oh, you're going to be a third pole. So like, we're going to help you unify so that you can be against us, basically, because obviously that would move away from us. No, that's crazy. Then we'll move and operate with different European countries and the Chinese and Russians will do the same. And so Europe will become an arena of geopolitical competition rather than being covered by a kind of Europe-wide thing. So I think that what Europe should do is Germany should take leadership responsibility in a collective model within NATO and to some extent within the European Union for the defense of, 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 of European NATO. 
And Americans can help with that training, high-end capabilities, fungible capabilities, some select kind of forces, et cetera. And then we can support the European Union more and in the European Union's role, so long as Europe is, you know, aligned. I mean, the French don't like this word, but I mean, aligned to me is kind of a, it's a soft word. You know, it's not like subservient. It's basically like, look, we're going to, Europe's going to look to America for generating geoeconomic scale. It's not going to try to equi equilibrate between the US and China. Then we're, our incentive is going to be to operate within Europe and same with the Chinese. So, um, and then, you know, on the security front, I mean, I, I have tremendous sympathy for, you know, the, the, the captive nations that are now free and deserve to be. And many of them like Poland are deserve special applause because they really are focusing on their own defense. I think Romania as well, and it's some extent the Baltics. But we're not, we're not going to be there, in, and I've told them this directly, we're not going to be there in sufficient capacity alone. They have to work with some other model. And I think uh, um, probably working with the Scandinavians, the Brits, there's a natural alignment there. But again, this the Germans are really, so I think again, in, in, Germany has historic decision about whether it's going to, you know, for its own sake, but also for the sake of Europe. But of course, given its location, it's always going to affect Germany what the overall European landscape looks like. And, you know, this continued free riding and offloading of responsibility, which is the generous way of putting it, self-interested would be the other, um, will have ramifications and we cannot keep bailing them out, basically. So, you know, I don't think that's a good future for Europe. I think there's a natural alternative model. I wish the, uh, that Paris had a different approach. I mean, I don't think the Poles and others are ever going to trust the French fully, just even from a power perspective. But if you had a model that involved the Germans, the Brits, the Scandinavians, and the American state involved on the defense side, that, that would be a much more credible. And that would significantly outweigh Russia, even though Russia can pack a punch because of its political culture and, and cohesive you know, power structure. Yes, I fear that if we move uh, on, if we keep uh, with this track the way you outlined it, uh, I fear that Europe uh, is going to turn into a geopolitical background uh, of the global affairs in this in the yeah. next decade, where every significant regional, not just the systemic uh, systemic powers, the great powers, but also regional powers such as Russia mm -hmm. and Turkey will actually try, and maybe to some extent even Iran will actually try to uh, capitalize on that yeah. and will try to right. uh, penetrate the, the geoeconomic space, use uh, uh, different interest groups, uh, lobbyist groups, right. or, you know, minor countries right. to exactly. balkanize mm -hmm. to further balkanize the the right. continent and then actually uh build there and we don't like this word here but in reality in real politic terms there are already spheres of uh, interest whether we like it or sure. not Right. And of course, uh, they will build uh, and will uh, fortify their spheres of uh, influence. So once again, because I yeah. see that uh, the time is, uh, you know, <laughs> so we are already beyond five. Uh, would you have some time for a few questions uh, from the chat? There is, sure. for instance, a question regarding the remarks of the German Navy chief um, uh, who was uh, who had to resign uh, following his remarks uh, in India? Uh, so, what uh, are your thoughts? Uh, maybe you can add something. Uh, I mean, yeah. um, how did you anticipate? 
paid the whole, you know, the whole episode uh, following his remarks, he had to resign because right. he actually stated that uh, Putin uh, deserves respect over Ukraine. But then again, also he also suggested that at some point of time, um, Europeans would need to uh, engage with Russia, more with Russia in order to compete with uh, China, similarly as the Indians would be doing so what are your thoughts on that this is one of the questions okay well i i i've just seen a couple of the news reports i haven't looked at the full the full comments but i mean there's a strain of discussion that's kind of like well we have to understand where the russians are coming from and what their history and what okay i mean we should understand where they're coming from for our own purposes but that doesn't doesn't mean we like give them credit for it. I mean, I don't know, the Ukrainians don't want to be taken over. So I don't, I'm not like sympathetic to the Russians on this point. I understand where they're coming from, but I'm going to look, you know, the heuristic to look at is what is in, I mean, for me, it's in what's in my country's interest enlightened way that, that is compatible with others, I, uh, hopefully, of course. But, you know, okay, yes, I know that, that Putin cares a lot about Prince Vladimir and, you know, the Kiev and Rus and stuff, but okay. Like, I mean, Mexico would probably like to take California and Texas back, but we're not going to give it back. So, I mean, I don't, you know, okay. So th that's kind of my, and I, you know, probably military chiefs should not be commenting on sensitive political issues like that. But I mean, I, that's what I'd love to hear German uh, chiefs of staff talking about would be like, you know, it would really be the, the, the right thing for Germany to do would be to have a much more robust military cap capability to, to provide for European collective defense. It's within our ability. It's going to meet our obligations. And it's our historic responsibility given our past. That would be a nice thing to hear from a European chief. Instead of, oh, I feel so much sympathy for Vladimir Putin. How about some sympathy for like Poland or Ukraine or the Baltic states? That would be well, that would be well, you know, that would be like really great to hear. <laughs> If, if they're going to spout off on sympathizing with other countries. I can only recommend uh, a piece which was written by Harold Malmgren, who actually served in uh, several U.S. administrations. He's a living legend uh, uh, in the United States. What the West uh, gets wrong about Putin, just I would really recommend uh, everyone to read this uh, a uh, wonderful piece of history because he met Putin personally and uh, there he describes exactly Putin's uh, Russian approach of uh, you know actually dealing with uh, everyone else by creating first and foremost problems or an environment of uh, threats or uh, insecurity or viol uh, you know volatility and once you have to deal in this kind of insecure environment and you're put under pressure and you have basically a gun put to your hand, which is now the case with Ukraine. Of course, you are in an extreme uh, situation and you have to come up with uh, something very quickly. So in a sense, uh, he really outlines uh, the approach uh, in a perfect manner. And I don't have uh, more to add to this. There is a question about the African policy. What should be the Africa policy uh, for the United States or maybe for a possible cooperation? between the United States and Europe in uh, the future? And also, do you foresee a stronger or growing role for the dragon bear, that means China, Russia, in Africa? Or probably they just go separate ways and each one of them tries to, uh, well, to 
fortify or well guarantee and safeguard their own national interests on the ground. Uh, China has become, meanwhile, trading partner number one uh, to most of uh, the African countries and squeezed uh, European powers, America, other, uh, with a few exceptions, of course, South Africa still has some regional clout. Uh, well, I think for us, Africa's got to be a, a, you know, a secondary kind of theater. I mean, from certainly from a military point of view, I, I to me, I think this is an, this would be a natural area for for Europe to take the lead. Um, you know, I mean, probably makes more sense for the U.S. to focus on Latin America and and Asia. Um, so that would be my. I, I don't have too much else to add about about that. But this is an area where I think you know. To, to the point about France, I mean, France feels a very strong connection, Italy, obviously, North Africa, so we should, we should help them, but, you know, and we should, we should defer to Europe, in my view, defer to European preferences on, you know, the political situation and so forth, you know, I mean, Europe is feeling the pinch on migration and all these things, so, you know, we don't need to be, we don't need to be the, always getting our position uh, uh, accepted, so that's kind of my, my take on that. Okay, uh, and final question, which is related to the US uh, foreign policy establishment. Mm -hmm. Do you think that the foreign policy establishment will change and priori prioritize by its own, uh, pro probably it's meant, of course, uh, the approach to China, or will it need a bank from outside? Uh, and I would add also, because mm. you mentioned right at the beginning uh, with the growing geoeconomic cloud uh, in, China and in East Asia. Of course, the main reason for this geoeconomic cloud was America, the way how America introduced China and connected China to all relevant US-led networks was the necessary condition. Of course, not the sufficient uh, condition, this slide with the efforts of the country itself, but the necessary condition for China's rise will actually America become, and this will be my additional question, will become also the main reason or the necessary condition for China's demise by the coupling. And are we in fact not observing a dichotomy right now because the US defense community, the, to some extent, the intelligence community, the military folks, they are convinced that this is coming because they have this long-term strategic thinking. But American businesses, Wall Street, banks, investors, they are still very much on the ground. They are not convinced that actually they have to withdraw from China, right? So we, there is also a dichotomy because not all stakeholders are on the same page. How do, yeah. do they also need the bank, so to say, from outside once when they realize that China pursues also national interests and will actually protect its national companies, uh, detrimental, which will be detrimental to their business interests in the long term, right? Not, not now. Sure. So on the first question, um, I don't know. That's, I mean, I, my, my, uh, essentially my, what I'm trying to do is to ensure that we shift before the bank because the consequences of waiting for the bang would be great and result in many people, I think, dying unnecessarily. So that's what I spend my time doing, trying to avoid that. Um, there are encouraging signs, but you know, we're not racing against ourselves, we're racing against China and China's got a lot going for it. So, and they work hard and they're focused. So I am worried, pretty worried. 
very worried in, in some ways. Um, so um, not so much that the whole will just kind of lose entirely, but that we'll be forced into a conflict we didn't need to fight that could be a lot worse that we could lose um, or something like that. But, um, you know, I just, the blob is real and um, its incentives are not really to think and seriously grapple with all the ramifications of what, how, where the world is going. It's, it's much more small C conservative. You know, I compare a lot of it to like the old Mandarin system of uh, Imperial China. You know, you know the texts, you've been mentored in a certain way, there's certain schools. Often there's, there's personal connections where you don't wanna be disloyal to somebody who is your patron or so. So it's, it's, um, it's, I don't think the blob is performing its function very well. Uh, it's basically status quo uh, oriented. And I don't think the American people actually want the status quo. I mean, I'm a Republican and I'm pretty, pretty convinced that that's the case among Republican voters, but I also think on the Democratic side, uh, there's widespread dissatisfaction. So, you know, I think it's a matter of time, but time is critical. I mean, you know, if the British had, had deployed a, you know, their army to Europe in June of 1914, would Germany have risked, you know, starting war? Quite possibly not, you know, there'd be, Europe would be in a lot better shape probably. So, um, uh, so yeah, that's, but that's a great question. I don't know, I don't know. Um, uh, to your question, uh, Luna, the, um, yeah, the business community has a different business community. I mean, there's a lot of businesses. I mean, it depends on the business. I mean, companies that are more, you know, industrial oriented, they're, they know what China's up to bad. You know, the companies that tend to be very pro-China are financial services, entertainment, even the technology companies, a lot of them have moved out of China or largely moved out of China um, because they see what happens. So, and I think, you know, it's, as the communists say, it's not a coincidence because, I mean, I think Beijing has made a concerted effort to cultivate ties, particularly on Wall Street and places like that. You know, my view is, again, it connects back to what we were talking about earlier. We don't need full-scale decoupling. Uh, we need to remove the source of leverage that would, that would bring us to our knees, basically. And we need to restore, you know, we need an industrial policy and so forth that restores our, our manufacturing base. And we screwed up big time. I think the people, you know, the neocons and all these people have been justly decried for their role in, you know, Iraq and, and ruining America's position. But the other group that hasn't is the people who just kind of threw open the door to China and didn't hold them to, to account on any of the things in the WTO entry, for instance. You know, I mean, at least when they were brought into the WTO, they were supposed to change and they didn't do anything. And so some people made a lot of money, um, but it wasn't net beneficial not to hold China to account. I, I think integrating China, China into the world economy was and is necessary to some extent, but we needed to have safeguards, which were supposed to be there. Um, and that's where that's clearly where the American public is now, I think. I mean, there are, uh, again, it depends on who you are. Farmers, for instance, they want to export to China. But I think on the whole, um, people want China to be held to account and make sure that we have, you know, yes, free, but also fair and, and, and you know, equitable uh, trading arrangements with, with China. And that's not something that's going to be probably on the table for some time, given where they're moving. Yes. A lot, a lot of question marks at the end of this conversation, which means that we need uh, to continue with this uh, discussion. Um, 
but also a lot of food for thought. So for all of our viewers and listeners who are interested in the American defense in the age of great power uh, competition, buy the book of Strategy of <laughs> okay. Denial by Albrecht Colby. I suppose there is going to be another one <laughs> coming coming <laughs> out very soon. And uh, thank you very much. Thank you very much for staying with us for actually almost uh, 80 minutes, uh, also for answering questions from the chat room. And uh, well, I wish you, of course, uh, much success with all your endeavors uh, for the future. Same to you. Thank you, Valina. It was a real pleasure to talk with you. So I look forward to doing it again sometime. Thank you. Thank you, Bridge. Thank you.